You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and here on the uh, New Books and Sports uh, channel on the New Books Network, and I am here today with David Block, author of Pastime Lost, The Humble, Original, and Now Completely Forgotten Game of English Baseball, out from University of Nebraska uh, Press in 2019. Now, for those of you not already familiar with him, um, David is a baseball historian whose research is focused on the origins of the game. Um, Pastime Lost, the humble, original, now completely forgotten game of English baseball was a finalist for the 2020 Seymour Medal awarded by the Society of American Baseball Research to the best book of baseball history or biography published in the preceding year. His previous book, Baseball Before We Knew It, A Search for the Roots of the Game, won the 2006 Seymour Medal as well as the 2006 North American Society for Sports History uh, Book Award, and is considered to be the definitive study of baseball's origin. So we're very lucky to have uh, David with us today to fill us in on, um, on on English baseball. Thank you very much for joining us, David. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, Keith. And I should um, I should warn listeners as well that this is our first um, this rather this is my first lockdown interview. So I do have a 22 month old who. Uh, might be tearing through the house at some point in time, but I will try to avoid as much noise as possible. Um, but just if you if you hear a delightful a toddler, that's mine, not David's. Um, David, can maybe you can get us started talking about the book by telling us how you developed this project. Uh, well, yeah, it, it was in a way uh, an off offshoot of my first book. My first book, uh, Baseball Before We Knew It came out in 2005, and it was a general study of baseball's origins. Uh, Baseball's origins was a topic that uh, historians generally had had shied away from. Um, There were a lot of uh, conflicting accounts of how baseball started, a lot of mythology involved in it. And I wrote a book just solely focused on that topic, both dispelling some of the uh, myths about it, as well as uh, introducing a lot of new information from my own original research on it. Uh, one of the things that I talked about in the book was a game called English Baseball. I was aware of the fact that there were a couple of references to baseball from English sources in the 18th century. Um, and I always found that very intriguing. I mean, what what could the English have been doing playing baseball in the 18th century because 
baseball was always seen as an American sport. It was something always identified with the United States and Canada. Um, and it, it, you know, it seemed really strange to have references to baseball uh, from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean uh, from a century earlier than most people considered the beginnings of baseball. Uh, but I didn't know very much about English baseball when I published my first book. Um, and, and after uh, that had gone to press, I just started thinking more about this, this uh, strange set of references from England. And I decided to pursue that and see what I could learn about that game. Um, at the time, I thought that baseball as played in England in that early time was essentially the same game as rounders. Rounders is a bat and ball sport that's obviously a close relation of baseballs uh, that's played in England, played throughout the UK, actually. And its origins and its history also had, had never really been studied. And I had thought that the two games, rounders, English baseball, were essentially the same. Because from my initial research, done before there were any digital databases, showed that the word rounders had not come into use in England until the early part of the 19th century. Whereas the name baseball, even though there were only a few references, they seemed to fade out during the same period of time. So my conclusion, based on what I knew at the time, was that rounders was just a new name that had replaced the earlier name of baseball in England. And that signified a fairly primitive bat and ball game that was related in some way to American baseball. But my subsequent research that I've done over the past 15 years showed I was fairly mistaken about a number of things that I thought back then. One, I've now discovered that rounders at English baseball were not the same game at all. And I can go back into that and explain what the differences are between those two games. But secondly, English baseball, I discovered to my amazement, did not disappear early or in the middle of the 19th century as I had once supposed. I've discovered hundreds upon hundreds of references to the game that show that it continued to be played throughout the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century, completely under the radar. In fact, the most amazing thing about this game of English baseball uh, and what captivated me the most and what drove me to, to keep researching and to write about it was the fact that nobody knew about it, that it was a game that seemed to have disappeared from, from all visible memory and from all visible knowledge. Here it was, a game called baseball, the likely ancestor to American baseball. My research showed that it was played for almost 200 years my research showed that it was quite popular in, in parts of England for decades and decades, that it was played very widely, played by all classes of society, and yet all knowledge of it seemed to have disappeared. And, and so that fact just intrigued me and drove me to, to keep pursuing my research. That was a kind, for me... Um... A, a kind of fascinating aspect of the research, which is just how um, relatively quickly uh, English baseball became completely um, 
un- unknown. And certainly it was something as a sports historian that I was not very familiar with. So I, 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 um, I appreciated your ability to kind of painstakingly recover all, all these references um, related to it in, in just in a very clear way um, through your writing, unpack some of those references. I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about um, the actual process of collecting research, because for a lot of people, I think um, what you did might strike them as, as somewhat um, unfamiliar. You're just, especially your use of the digital archives and then some of the, the, the work you did kind of tracing down the hard sources. So I'm wondering if you can talk to, to us a little bit about that. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, my first book, which came out in 2005, my research for that book was done, I guess you could say in the old fashioned way for that. I had to go to, from library to library, um, looking at books, chasing down leads, looking at microfilm, microfiche, uh, very time-consuming, very hard to cover very much ground in a short period of time. Um, but that's how research was done for, for many decades. But about 15 years ago, um, more and more institutions were scanning and digitizing old books and old newspapers so that the, the data from those books went into databases that using uh, optical character recognition software could um, create um, files that could then be searched. So, uh, you could put in a search word like baseball or something like, you know, any, any combination of words into um, a, a computer. And then the software would search through millions of pages of text looking for those words or combinations of words that you would put into your, um, into your screen. Now, it's not a perfect process, especially dealing with older sources because the quality of the files that are created, the digital files that are created by scanning is only as good as the quality of of the original material. And especially the case of older newspapers, um, the, the scanning often would look somewhat garbled to the computer so that you might have the word baseball appear 20 times but if you search for it, maybe only two would show up. And um, a lot of false positives would also show up of other words that had letters that kind of looked similar to some of the letters and the words you were searching for. So it's kind of uh, uh, only a, a partially accurate process. But just the ability to scan in seconds what previously you couldn't have done in a lifetime um, uh, produced much greater research results than, than the older methods. And, and one of the fascinating things for me is that, um, I mean, in my own research, for example, I looked at newspapers from the Second World War in France and painstakingly copied them over in the archive. And then about uh, you know, two years after I finished my PhD, they were all digitized, <laughs> and as, you, as, you, as you say, um, you know, optically. Um, recorded and, and suddenly searchable, which has proven to be very useful in writing the book, you know, writing the book from the dissertation. But I was working in an era when the names of the games that I'm looking at uh, and the people 
uh, I might be looking at were relatively in place. Maybe French people sometimes using English words, um, but generally speaking, you know, only spelling football one way, but you couldn't rely on that. So how did you, I mean, what other innovative strategies did you use? Well, in the case of the word baseball itself, um, there was no or very little standardization in spelling um, in the 18th century and early 19th century. So the word baseball could appear as one word like we use it today, or it could be two separate words, base, space, ball, or it could be hyphenated, base, hyphen, ball, or it could be spelled alternately, such as think of the word base as in bass violin, B-A-S-S. It was not unusual to find the word baseball spelled B-A-S-S-B-A-L-L, either as one whole word or separated or hyphenated. And there were were even other alternate spellings to that. Plus, you had to get pretty creative uh, trying to outguess the way the optical character recognition would treat a particular word in a particular um, application. So sometimes I'd have to use, uh, I, I tried like haceball using an H instead of the B because the two letters look similar. Or in the case of baseball, that S, B-A-S, if it was in the 18th century, S's in the middle of words often would, would in, in typography, it would be the long S, which looked kind of like an F. So if you put in B-A-F-E-B-A-L-L, you might get a result that way. So there were all sorts of tricks that you had to use, that I had to use, to try to elicit more uh, responses than just simply searching for baseball, because uh, that would only begin to touch on the, the possible stuff you might be able to get out of the database. I want to tell um, listeners as well um, in the book, you explain all this in great uh, detail, as well as um, with much humor, <laughs> trying to figure out how to fool the, the system. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering <laughs> if, if now might be the time, though, to uh, introduce um, English baseball and maybe give us a, a, a bit of a description of, of sure. how it may have been played and, and situate it with other bat and ball games of which you discuss quite a number. Right. I'd be happy to. One of the great frustrations to me in all this research is even though I found hundreds of references to the game, very, very few of them gave any clue to how the game was actually played. And that has something to do with the character of the game itself. English baseball was not a physical sport in the same way that we think of modern baseball or uh, football or cricket. Um, It was a folk game. It was something that was played on social occasions with your friends. Often the friends were in a mixture of, of boys and girls, men and women, sometimes everybody together, all ages. It was really uh, something that was played on an ad hoc basis at a picnic Uh, at a school outing, it was uh, not something that was regulated by standards like more serious games are today or professional sports are today. So 
because of that, because it was just really essentially a picnic game, most media did not, you know, newspapers and book writers did not go out of their way to try to describe this game, how it was played. And most of the references to it that I found were simply a little newspaper report that the, you know, the Methodist Sunday school, you know, had its annual children's treat on Sunday and they played, you know, a list of seven or eight games and baseball being one of them. So, all that told you was that the game was played and who played it, maybe where it was played, but not how it was played. So in order to try to determine how English baseball was played, I had to kind of just draw little clues from many, many different sources. There were only a couple of actual descriptions of English baseball that I found during the course of my research and two images of it. Um, and what these all showed was that the game was played um, most often without a bat. You had a pitcher or a bowler who served the ball to a, a striker who would then hit the ball with his or her hand, the palm of the hand, and then start running around the bases as, you know, as, as is done with the kind of baseball you, you might be more familiar with. So the object was still was to proceed as far as possible around the bases. People who were playing out in the field on the defensive side would then try to catch a struck ball on the fly, in which case the batter was out, or retrieve the ball. And instead of forcing the runner at a base or tagging the runner uh, with the ball uh, when the runner's not on a base, in English baseball, you had to take the ball and strike the runner with the ball when the runner was not on a base. Now, uh, almost by definition, the ball itself was not a very hard ball. I don't know exactly how soft it was, but it must have been fairly soft because this was how uh, base runners uh, were put out. And since children played the game, I doubt that the ball could have been very hard. So in crude form, that was the nature of the game. It had the same basic elements that we recognize as baseball with a, with a striker and a pitcher and base running and fielders trying to catch the ball. But it was on a much smaller scale and uh, was not nearly as strenuous a physical sport uh, as some of the other games that I mentioned. Yeah, it... it um... One of the things I kept trying to do when reading the book is put together like a little taxonomy, you know, a, 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 a chart of descent. And, and would it be fair to say then um, that you're conclu you've concluded or you, you think that this version of baseball, this folk version of the game is, is in some ways the oldest that we know of and probably the originator of both the rounders tradition and baseball? Is that kind of? That, that's fair. That's a fair representation. The earliest evidence of baseball in England comes from the 1740s, 1750s, and 1760s. There's six references to the game from that era, and they're from a variety of sources, a children's book, a, a diary, a handwritten letter, a newspaper, a brief little newspaper article, a, a novel. Um, and in each of those situations, 
the players were different. Sometimes it was boys. Sometimes it was young men and young women playing together. Sometimes it was a whole family playing together. Um, but these references are much older than the earliest references in North America. The earliest references in North America, there's only two from the 18th century, and they're both from later in the century. Um, so while we have no hard proof that this game that was played in England is the immediate ancestor of the game that was played in North America, um, there's a very strong circumstantial case that could be made uh, for that being the likeliest course of events because the name was the same, baseball. Name what was used in England and the same name was used in North America. And the general characteristics of the game are the same. So uh, for those to have happened or developed independently of each other would have been fairly unlikely. And since there was quite a bit of, of, of travel between Great Britain and North America during the 18th century, mostly in the form of, of trade, but also in the form of immigrants coming into North America from, from Great Britain, it is very likely that the game came to North America as part of the British culture that also came with the immigrants. The nursery rhymes came, you know, you know the way people cooked came. Every, you know, every aspect of culture came across the ocean along with the immigrants. And, and it's my theory that baseball was part of that culture that came across. I have to tell you, I was completely convinced um, by your argument there, although I did have to wonder um, whether you still get invited to all the Sabre events <laughs> when I was reading. <laughs> but uh, Fortunately, my, my friends in Sabre are, are, are very uh, accommodating of somebody who's, who deals with uh, English baseball, even though the, the, the name Sabre is, stands for Society for American Baseball Research, uh, they're, they're very tolerant of my peculiarities. One of the fascinating things that um, I found in the book w was this kind of broad appeal of the game. And, and, and you actually um, have some pretty interesting information about the game being played at the elite level. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of, or, or rather by elites, not, not at, a, at a professional level, but by elites. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, baseball's first family and, and right. um, <laughs> yeah, who are some of the people we know that were playing baseball type games? Well, the most interesting thing is that of the three earliest references to baseball from the 1740s, two of them involve the same guy who was the Prince of Wales, Frederick, the Prince of Wales. Frederick was the oldest son of George II of England. And uh, the, the first reference involving him came in a letter written by a friend of his, named uh, Lady Harvey, who uh, was a courtier. She, she uh, you know, had been a lady-in-waiting to, to, the, to the wife of George II, and she married this Lord Harvey, and Lord Harvey at first had been friends with Frederick, Prince of Wales. Then they had a disagreement and uh, parted ways, but, but she kept being friends with Frederick. And after her husband died... In 1748, she paid a visit to the prince and his family in London. And she, uh, 
while she was on that visit, she wrote a letter to a friend of hers saying that um, the prince and his family played a game of baseball. And uh, the original of that letter no longer exists, but her letters were, were uh, uh, reprinted in the early 19th century. And so that's how we have a record of her writing that letter and uh, mentioning baseball. And at the time, it just mentioned that the prince's family played baseball. And it wasn't clear to me whether Prince Frederick himself had involved himself in the game. Uh, I didn't know if it was just his children, because, you know, at the time I thought baseball was probably mainly a children's game. But then I made a, a pretty amazing discovery. This was about eight years ago. Uh, I was um, going through these, one of these databases, and it actually is a whole story unto itself how I made the discovery. But I found in a newspaper from 1749 a very brief mention of uh, a visit that the Prince of Wales made to a friend of his, uh, Lord Middlesex. And Lord Middlesex uh, was the Earl of Middlesex, and he was a very close friend of the Prince of Wales. And the two had played a lot of cricket together. They often competed against each other in cricket, often for very high stakes. Um, but this newspaper article really shocked me because it said, on Tuesday last, and I'm quoting here, on Tuesday last, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, and Lord Middlesex played at baseball at Walton in Surrey. And notwithstanding the weather was extreme bad, they continued playing several hours. Well, that was uh, quite a significant discovery because, first of all, it showed that at that very early stage, it wasn't just kids playing baseball. This was 1749, and already these two men who were both approaching middle age, they were both around 40 years of age, and they kept playing for several hours in the rain, which shows that they took it pretty seriously. And, and maybe it was just the strong sense of competition they had between, between themselves, but uh, it was uh, quite a noteworthy uh, thing when I found that. And uh, the fact that these two early references both involved the Prince of Wales um, was was kind of interesting in its own right because it showed that the game was being played not only by the highest levels of the nobility, um, but it also the fact that these adults were playing it. And now it may well have been that at that stage, lots of people were playing it. But at that time, newspapers hardly existed. And the ones that did exist were in London and they were maybe four pages long. And the only things they really reported on were politics, war, religion, business, crime. They didn't really devote any column space to sports or social activities to speak of. And when they did, it was only really the social activities of nobility that they would bother reporting on. So this made the newspaper because it was the Prince of Wales involved. But you know, many, many other people may have been playing baseball at the time and it just never, you know, got reported on. Yeah, I think you, I mean, you make a pretty, I think a pretty compelling case for that. Um, one of the, 
things that readers or listeners should should know, and of course everyone should of course read the book as well, um, is that you engage in kind of different methodologies in terms of unpacking some of this. So uh, the close reading that you're doing on some of these early documents, I think was really rich. And, and part of it that I enjoyed the most is the very clear way and careful way you kind of explain how you're thinking about them rather than just assuming that we're all on the same page. Um, but you also engage in a, I would say a kind of statistical analysis of the sources too, um, looking at the number of different sources across the breadth of, of the, of the country. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, okay, if, if, if some elites are playing this game and it's a, it's a folk game, how, how broadly played in England is this game? Is this only a London phenomenon just outside or are we going to find it on the, uh, on the border with Scotland or where is it? Right. So, um, what you're referring to is a chapter in the book where I kind of express my express my frustration that because this was a folk game and because there were no known leagues or teams that there were no statistics for English baseball and having grown <laughs> up as a kid with baseball cards and loving to read the back and following all the statistics of, of my favorite teams and players I kind of was upset about the fact that there were no statistics for English baseball, so I had to make up my own. And what I did was I went through all the references, the more than 400 references to English baseball that I knew about, and I tried to categorize them. I categorized them based upon what year the reference was from, uh, based upon who was playing the game. Based, you know, Was it children? Was it men, women? all of them together. Um, so I, I took those statistics and also the location of where this reference was based. And um, accumulating all of those, I came up with you know, different tables of statistics that just to satisfy my own bizarre craving for, for having stats. And with, with it was kind of interesting what I found, although the statistics that I gathered were by their very definition a little disjointed in the sense that because there were very few newspapers from the 18th century and early 19th century, there was almost no newspaper reporting that mentioned baseball from that period of time. Although from other sources, I could tell that the game was pretty popular then. Um, by contrast, beginning in the middle of the 19th century and going to the end of the, end of the 19th century, there was this huge explosion of newspaper publications in, in, in England where, you know, every little region had its own newspaper and sometimes many newspapers. So there were many, many more newspaper reports um, and, and there were many, many more references to baseball as a result. And, and so it, it would appear from those statistics that the game was more popular in the second half of the 19th century than it was previously. But I think that was just a result of the fact that there were no newspapers from that era. In any case, what I was able to determine overall, which I think is fairly accurate, is the locations of where the game was most popular. And, and that was the counties in Southeast England, roughly the ones surrounding London, the rural counties surrounding London, not so much in London itself. The game seems to have been popular in the home counties and in East Anglia. 
Some of those counties included uh, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, Hampshire, Surrey, Norfolk, Suffolk, and, and several others. And that's where the vast majority of the references to English baseball that I found were located. But then again, I found scattering references to it throughout England and even into Scotland and even into Wales. But the great preponderance were from the southeast quadrant of England. And I found that, as I said, all genders played the game. It was played by men, women, boys, girls, and various combinations of them. And um, all ages. And um, it just shows that it was really a family game. It was really a, a, a game that uh, was played for fun rather than for serious competition. Um, and, and, it, and it also interested me, and I didn't take statistics of this, but I also noted the, um, the social class or the occupation of the people who played the game. And this also covered the whole gamut of society. As with the case of Prince of Wales, there were instances where royalty and nobility played the game. But there were also many instances where the, the, the poorest members of society played the game. Children in poor houses and workhouses um, were taken on outings and they played the game. And there were references to printers, seamen, carpenters, policemen, you know, shopkeepers, factory workers, uh, religious societies, political parties, uh, all kinds of uh, social welfare societies, literary societies, choirs. Everybody played baseball, it seemed. It was just fascinating to me how widespread throughout the entire society this game was enjoyed. And uh, it, it just, you know, made me really appreciate that there was this fun game that so many different kinds of people were playing, and yet nobody remembers it. I mean, when I said earlier about how the game has been completely forgotten, I'm, I, I took a number of research trips to England, and on those occasions, I would visit social historians. I'd visit uh, people who studied uh, the leisure practices, both of men and women in the Victorian era and in the, the 18th century. Nobody knew about baseball. It just kind of blew my mind. I just couldn't understand why nobody else had ever come across references to it. Although I did realize that probably some of them had come across some of the same references that I had seen. But when they saw the word baseball, they just somehow associated with American baseball and didn't think anything of it because they weren't familiar with this game that had been played in England. Yeah, I'm, I'm, there, there's two different things I kind of want to ask, ask you about. I guess I'll, I'll follow that, that particular line, which is that there, there were a lot of complicating baseballs, right? Does not just English baseball. And as your story drives towards the end of the 19th century, there's also American baseball and then another baseball as well as rounders. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you un unscrambled all of these things. It is a little confusing. Even I'm confused by it. And not all, the, not all the questions have been answered. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff I don't know about English baseball and its relationship to rounders, for example. 
But as far as I can tell, the original game was baseball. That's the earliest one that we have any references to in the actual historical record. The word rounders did not come into use, at least did not appear anywhere in the written record until 1828. But then after 1828, use of it exploded. And, and by the middle of the 19th century, there was hundreds upon hundreds of references to rounders. It was in a lot of books. And rounders is very similar to baseball. And that's why I thought the two were at first essentially the same game. <clears throat> but rounders always used a bat. English baseball, in most instances from my research, did not use a bat. Although, of course, I did find find situations where a bat was used in English baseball, but in most uh, applications where there was a mention of how the game was played, a bat was not used. I think that was one distinction between the two. <clears throat> and um, I believe that toward the end of the 18th century, um, some players of baseball, English baseball, started experimenting with use of a bat because I found maybe half a dozen references to a game that was simply called bat and ball in the late 18th and early 19th century. And I believe that that was kind of this hybrid game that was, that was uh, created by, by introducing a bat into English baseball. And that was the game that uh, soon afterwards uh, adapted the name rounders. Now rounders was played in the 19th century, mostly by boys and men. The, today in England and Great Britain, it's still widely played in schools, but almost exclusively by girls. But back then, it was a game for, for males. But toward the end of the 19th century, several things happened. One is there was a more advanced version of rounders, I guess you could say, that, uh, that men uh, were playing in the uh, busiest seaports on the west coast of, of Great Britain, including Cardiff, Bristol, um, Liverpool, and, and um, Glasgow in Scotland. And it was called rounders, but it was a uh, much more physical game than the schoolyard game of rounders that kids have been playing. Um, and in the 1880s, a number of clubs had formed, leagues were had formed, associations. But a, a lot of these rounders players, these men, uh, were tired of having their game confused with the wimpy picnic version of rounders that kids played. So in 1892, they all changed the name of their game from rounders to baseball. But they continued playing the same rules that they had played uh, when it was called rounders, which was different than American baseball. They had 11 players to the side, like, like in cricket, instead of the nine in baseball. They had posts in the grounds uh, for bases instead of the flat bases in Amer as in American baseball. They didn't use gloves in the field, even though the ball was pretty hard. Um, they didn't have foul lines like in American baseball. It was kind of like uh, you could hit the ball in any direction, including behind you. So it was a different game than American baseball, but they called it baseball. And I've called that game British baseball in order to distinguish it from American baseball and to distinguish it from English baseball. 
it gets a very confusing picture. But that game, British baseball, continued to be played all the way through the 20th century and is still being played barely in Cardiff and South Wales. It, it, it's nearly extinct in Liverpool, which was the only other place that was being played up until very recently. So yeah, there's all these different baseballs. And uh, um, so in the case of British baseball, it was originally English baseball, then the name turned into rounders, then the name turned back into baseball. So that's why it gets very confusing. And then for you, at, at, uh, at the after the American Civil War, of course, you, then you find are finding a lot of references to American <laughs> baseball as well. Uh, what happens there? That was the hardest thing because a lot of these little newspaper articles just said baseball was played. And as you said, toward the end of the 19th century, American baseball kind of was introduced into Great Britain. Um, and so I started having a difficult time trying to understand which baseball was being referenced in a newspaper article that just said baseball was played. Um, although there were a lot of clues that uh, helped in the majority of cases. Anytime words like umpire or or bat or glove or nine, you know, as in referring to a team as a nine, um, these were terms that were almost always associated with American baseball. American baseball uh, was not played at all in Great Britain. I, well, the first club that was started was one that started near Inverness in Scotland in, in 1870, just very short-lived. And then there were a couple clubs that formed in Leicester, uh, the city of Leicester in the late 1870s. But it wasn't until the world tour uh, in uh, 1889 of um, Albert Spaulding, the sporting goods magnet, organized a world tour of American professionals in 1889, um, as 1888, 1889, and brought them to, to the UK, where there were a number of exhibition games played. <clears throat> and in the wake of that tour, there was a number of efforts that were made to start leagues in Great Britain, especially in England, to play American-style baseball. But it never really took on. Uh, there was a number of different organizations and leagues that started and then stopped a couple of years later. Um, I mean, the British already had rugby and, and soccer and, and cricket. Uh, they didn't really need another game. And um, so then baseball always, you know, at least on the organized level, was always seen as a, an American introduction. Because, you know, even at that time, English baseball, even though it had been quite popular for decades, was not really that well known in places like London. And so a lot of the people who wrote newspapers and, uh, you know, did other kinds of major writing did not even know very much about the domestic version of baseball that they were playing there. And so when American baseball came over there, mostly they compared it to rounders or cricket. They didn't compare it to their indigenous form of baseball. And it was only occasionally 
that somebody from Suffolk would you know, write a letter to the editor and say, hey, we've been playing baseball here for decades, that even any mention of the original English baseball uh, got noticed in the newspapers. There is, and, and you've alluded to it um, a few times already in our conversation, it, it, an interesting kind of gendered story as well. And I, I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but one part of this seems to be me that you're arguing is that um, part of the reason for cricket success and to a limited extent rounder success and the kind of disappearance of, of English baseball in some ways is that it gradually became seen as a game only for women rather than one that everybody would participate in. And instead, you know, instead of the Prince of Wales being manly um, playing baseball, increasingly men needed to play cricket or, or another game um, to show their, to show their masculine virtues. Is that, is that a fair reading? Do you think? Uh, that is absolutely true because even though my research showed that boys and men played this English baseball, at least as much, as much, if not more than girls and women, the game from a fairly early time was seen as a game for girls it somehow got that label, that label, excuse me. <clears throat> and it may be that at one point in its history, especially the early 19th century, it was being primarily played by girls and young women. For example, it's mentioned in literature. It wasn't mentioned in literature very often, but when it was, it was by women authors and um, and. Um, and that the the characters in the in the fictional works that were playing baseball were girls or young women. The best known of those was Jane Austen's mention of baseball in her novel Northanger Abbey. Um, she has her character Catherine Moreland. Uh, well, actually, Jane Austen scolds her character Catherine Moreland, saying that she would prefer playing cricket, baseball riding horseback, running around the countryside than, than reading books. And um, what's interesting also is that of the few other mentions of baseball and English literature from that era, two of the authors were blood relatives of Jane Austen's. Uh, a cousin, a first cousin of her mother's mentions baseball in a novel pu published in 1799, and a niece of Jane Austen mentions baseball in a novel published in 1850. In addition, a, the daughter of a close childhood friend of Jane Austen, a writer named Mary Russell Mitford, mentioned baseball in four different short stories in the 1820s and 1830s. So it was very, very curious to me that uh, a very high proportion of the times that baseball was mentioned in English literature in that era, the writers were either Jane Austen or people closely associated with her. That may be just a coincidence, or it just might be that baseball was very popular in the family. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what you're saying, uh, let me one make one other point. Please, um, please. The... There was a nonfiction book written in that same era in 1819. Um, it was a textbook on, on physics for girls. And in it, in a lesson on inertia, 
um, one of the characters in the nonfiction book says in playing baseball, you know, when I catch the ball, you know, it, it stops. But, you know, when I drop it, it falls. And she, I don't have the exact example memorized, but she used baseball in her explanation of the properties of inertia. And, and clearly the author, a woman, knew that her audience of girls, because these textbooks were directed toward female students, knew that they would be familiar with, with baseball. And that's why she chose it to use as her reference point instead of cricket or some other game. And in other writings, also from that very same period of time, authors often would say, you know, for boys, exercise is important, playing games like cricket and football, and for girls, playing games like Battle Door and Shuttlecock and baseball. And so it it just seemed to be that, at least in that era of the early 19th century, that baseball, English baseball, was seen as a game for girls and young women. It strikes me, um, you know, so many of our games are kind of codified in boys' schools. Um, and since baseball was seemingly not played principally in boys' school, you know, elite boys' schools, um, that it never was written down or formalized in some of the same right. ways. Exactly. So we have, we have this amazing folk game that's just being played uh, across much of the country, but especially in the, in the home counties uh, and around London. And um, it seems very popular and every county fair has, has its baseball. And then very suddenly it disappears and is forgotten <laughs> quite quickly. So I'm wondering, um, well, how does that happen? How, how and why? <laughs> um, I think now this is just guesswork on my part, but I guess it's educated guesswork. Two things happened. One, um, boys toward the end of the 19th century kind of migrated away from rounders, much more so into cricket and, and as you say, the school games of uh, um, football and rugby. Um, and at the same time, girls were migrating into playing rounders. And, and so I think what happened, especially right at the beginning of the 20th century, that there was a lot more standardization of games that were played in schools. And so there were certain games that were boys games, certain games that were girls games and rounders got designated as the girls game. And so kids, when they go on picnics or do things with their families, they tend to play the games that they know. And, and because English baseball was not picked up, as one of the games that was played as part of physical education in schools, it just fell out of memory. It just, you know, was dropped. And generally speaking, folk games as a whole started to really thin out and drop by the wayside because with the standardization of games in schools and with the formation of professional leagues in certain major sports, there wasn't as much room for just kind of these informal sports that people had played for decades or centuries. Um, there was just much more regimentation. And, and, and so uh, 
I think baseball is probably just one of many games, uh, probably a lot of, of which we don't remember the names of, that um, people, you know, stop playing, kids stop playing. It's... Yeah, I, um, I, that's about all the time we have today with David. I, I, would, I would add one uh, comment onto that last point, which is, of course, that many um, sports historians have not done a good enough job of looking at folk games, which, because of the difficulty of getting at many of the sources, I think remain understudied, but not David, <laughs> um, who painstakingly, um, painstakingly has seemingly dug up all the references. And, and, and all of you should read the book, by the way. I, 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 um, I want to encourage you all to read the book because it, it's an almost Bill Bryson-esque tale at times of finding some pretty incredible sources, um, not only through the t- digital archives, but also um, in, in visiting homes and, and libraries around, around the country. Um, so I, I Keith, really enjoyed reading it. <laughs> thank you, Keith. I want to just add one more thing. <clears throat> As you can tell, I'm losing my voice, which is not uncommon. But one more thing about the gender issue. <clears throat> Rounders has become a game that's identified today as a girl's game, and it's been that way for many decades. Nobody has ever written a history of rounders, um, even though it, you might successfully argue that rounders has been played by more people in Great Britain today than cricket. I mean, cricket is played in schools and it's you know played by boys mainly, but some girls, but more by boys. But it's quite possibly that rounders have been played be- by more people than have played cricket. Whereas there's hundreds, if not thousands, of course, thousands of books written about cricket, just like there's been thousands of books written about American baseball. Nobody's ever written a book about rounders. And so um, uh, maybe that's my next project. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, uh, David. Don't tell my wife. I will, will hopefully if she listens and she makes it through all 53 minutes, she's going to catch you, but <laughs> maybe she won't. <laughs> um, thank you very much, David, for, for joining us. We've been speaking with David Block. He's the author of Pastime Lost, the humble, original, and now completely forgotten game of English baseball out from Nebraska uh, Press in 2019. And he's also probably, you already know, author of baseball before we knew it a search for the roots of the game which won the the uh, seymour medal from the society for american baseball research in 20 or in 2006 and also the north american society for sports history's book award in 2006 thank you again for joining us david well thank you keith it's been my great pleasure 